0: Welcome, you're at OTR, Over the Rainbow, Achieving Mental Health for Real. This show is about real people battling real mental issues, and experts with tips to help in the battle. If you want to know more, please check out my trailer. So, if you are serious about battling issues, stay tuned. Your host is Bob Adelman, and his notes about today's episode follows. Today's episode is a talk with Wayne Shipman as I speak to him about his journey to homelessness, and his recovery, and how he finds peace with his new wife and new life. He suffers from bipolar and bipolar anger, which is similar to the anger that I express with my symptoms of anxiety-depression and ADHD, which I suffer from. We talked so long that I broke it up into two episodes, which premiere season 7 of OTR, Achieving Mental Health for Real. Part 1 will premiere on Christmas Day, and then again on January 3rd, 2022, along with Part 2. So enjoy the interview.
1: Hello, Wayne. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bob. I'm really looking forward to having this talk with you.
2: Yeah. Could you tell the audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Um, Well, I'm finding out the more I've learned about your story and kind of what you've experienced over the years with ADHD, how much we have in common. So, uh, I think a lot of things that I'm talking about with the bipolar issues and borderline disorders and different, different things I've experienced and suffered with over the years. There's so much similarity. Like I'm pretty excited about this conversation. I've looked forward to it for a
2: while. It does sound, uh, Like, you have quite a few issues going on. Um, Currently, your uh, diagnosis is bipolar. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Well, bipolar depression was the original um, diagnosis. And uh, I was going through some homelessness there for a while.
2: What kind of childhood did you have? Uh, Did it affect your adulthood?
1: Well, yeah. I mean... My childhood all the way through 18 years old when I left home set me up in such a bad way. When I got out here in the adult world, um, I literally was set up for failure by you know, a lot of the the traditional teaching and things that I learned in my family with my mother and especially my mother because I experienced five marriages in the home growing up. And that was by the time I was 12 years old. <laughs> wow. By the time I was 12 years old, I had four stepfathers coming and going. And eventually it was five divorces, you know.
2: When was the first, the first one? How young were you? Because they say the younger you are, the more you're affected by it.
1: My biological father was only in my, in my life for the first couple of years. And uh, she moved on to a different husband. The trouble was for me as I got as a as a as a late teenager fifteen sixteen seventeen years old um, I started realizing by interacting and associating with some of my friends at their homes in their homes seeing their parents, there was such a striking difference in how their parents had just normal interactions with their teenage sons and how they went about their daily business compared to the home I grew up in.
2: Would you say that your parents, um, had mental illness that was undiagnosed?
1: Yeah. The The more I've learned about the real scope of what mental illness is, definitely there was, there was different issues going on, mostly with my mother, mm-hmm. um, What I'm discovering is, to be honest with you, um, it wasn't really called mental illness back then. And especially, it wasn't called mental illness kind of where I came from, my generic heritage, my genetic heritage. I was born born in Kentucky in the Deep South. And as a kid, I mean, we literally lived up on what we called in the holler. It was just a kind of a two-room little house. It had electricity but no running water and it had an outhouse out in the backyard, that sort of thing. My mother joined the military when I was a real little boy. She joined the Army, and that's what kind of took us away from the Kentucky, the, the the mid-southern lifestyle, Appalachian Mountains, right there in Appalachia. And uh, But most of my relatives at that time Bob, they spoke with such a hardcore Southern draw. Right. And they they used words and language that when I showed up in, in my elementary school, my teachers hardly even knew what I was talking about most of the time <laughs> because I was using words they'd never heard of, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so through the years, this stuff that I was experiencing, which was mostly severe social withdrawal. hmm from my friends, from school, from anyone that my parents would bring over to, for the weekend or to you know if they had a barbecue cookout or whatever, I was the kid trying to stay in the room with my door closed.
2: would you uh, say you were had a lot of social anxiety, and that's what caused that?
1: yeah, yeah, extreme, extreme, and
2: yeah, I'm that way too
1: yeah i I just didn't have social interacting skills, man, right. Later in what I learned later on was I had such a poor self image of my own self. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, my earlier childhood, I don't want to beat it up too much because most of us have had, you know, a pretty hard go at it in our childhood. Some worse but, than others. You know so, what yeah. yeah, and what you and I I think we were talking about not long ago when we had the conversation. You and I were in tune with each other like as soon as I would start talking about something, you was just like, "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think what we were agreeing on was, yeah, we had some hard things happen in our childhood. And as we got into the early adult stages where I wasn't just dating girls anymore, I was actually, you know, I was on the hunt for stability. I wanted to settle down. I wanted somebody to call my wife. I wanted to have kids. I wanted to start a family. I didn't know how to go about that. But as time went on, I realized that the things that came with me, not really from my childhood but from my whole experience up to when I left as an adult, was such It's so hard to put a name on it, Bob. It's a uh... I I had there were so many superstitions that my mother in particular acted as if was real life, you know, even further than if you walk under a ladder, you have bad luck. And if a bad, you know, a black cat crossed your road, you got bad luck. It was worse than that. It was.
2: It kind of sounds like, uh, it sounds like OCD. Could she 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 Probably.
1: She was super paranoid about like everything going on. And we were victims always in society. She was victimized by society. We were victims in society, and she had a really, she had a really uh, a very strong vendetta to prove that we are somehow equals in society. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We we came from Kentucky. We weren't educated much. She married somebody that didn't didn't write. He couldn't write. He couldn't read and write English. And he jumped from job to job to job. That was my my early childhood. Mm -hmm. But he was the most abusive, drinking, narcissistic, loud, cussing person I've ever known in my life. This was your natural father? No, it's one of my stepfathers. One of your stepfathers. But see, that came with me as one of my personality traits. Of course, the way that I would express myself was being mad, slamming doors, punching the walls, because I didn't have. Uh, emotional language to explain my feelings. And so what I was doing was reacting what I grew up seeing in my house. Mm
2: -hmm. And that's always the case.
1: Yeah, and so what that caused for me was a lot of social kind of retaliation. I mean, a lot of, you know,
2: especially
1: my early 20s, up until I was 25, 27 years old, people my age were just so offended by me they were constantly, like, threatening to fight me and calling me out. Want me to, like, they were yelling out, like, come on out here, Wayne. We're going to get it on. And it's like, what in the world did I do? Why do you want to fight me? I didn't even realize I was offending people to that extent. I was just kind of expressing myself.
2: Do you think that you had, uh, did you, do you think that you, you might have had some ADHD as well?
1: Man, probably. But, you know, my, the things that happened to me, that were discovered by psychiatric evaluations were layered. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just one thing. And so part of what I try to promote by having these conversations is usually we go into a situation where we're trusting the advice of the doctors, the psychologists, the counselors. We're trusting them because we don't know what to do with our feelings and we don't know Mm -hmm. what it is. And when they talk to us, it makes sense. But the problem is they come to a conclusion sometimes really quick, a little bit too premature, and then they stand by it. They just stick with it. I know. And so when they first diagnosed me in 2008, uh, it was bipolar depression mixed with bipolar anger, which Mm -hmm. is a very complex problem. Uh, It's kind of like it's not just that, bipolar depression triggers my bipolar anger they go together Um, it's sort of this permanent it's a permanent kind of mindset that my brain my my mind first operates from being offended and i have to like figure out why i'm feeling so offended you know like just the impulsive trigger to be angry comes over me, and I start yelling out, punching things, right. slamming doors, not right. anymore, but then back then I was and and people were so
2: yeah i mean I mean, and that's what alienated me from my children this last time. I blew exactly. up exactly because yeah. you know why you blow up because your feelings are so hurt, and it's like you can't stand it, and you just have to blow up that's that's what happened to me, yeah. Uh, my daughter and son did something that wasn't all that uh, nice to me, and I told them, and I yelled at them, and I put it on a text message, which was a big mistake. To anybody out there yeah, yeah. arguing, never put your argument on a text message. And uh, you know, my daughter is practically <laughs> my daughter is practically disowned me now, similar to your situation that you'll talk about in a minute. Yeah, but yeah. but all of this led to. You got got married. What year was that? And that you got married? Um,
1: 1991. So I went in the United States Army in 1987, which was almost right out of high school. Went in the army, and I thought I was just going to be a patriotic soldier. You know, my mother was in the military, but I I almost had no respect. I didn't really have a lot of respect for the 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 persona that I always saw my mother representing as a soldier. And I mean, I'm trying to walk on this with eggshells, but the truth is this. My mother joined the military in the mid-70s, early 1970s. I don't know, 74, maybe 72. During that time, there was very few females in the military. And so when she came into the United States Army, she had a chip on her shoulder. She had something to prove about females being equal. And it was a pattern that I saw. It followed her until the day she retired. She retired, I think, in 1996 or 97, something like that. She retired after 20 years in the military. And it was hard for me, even now to this day, I'm 53 years old. And when I see her, when I think of her military career, she spent more time Defending herself as a female in the army, trying to prove that she was the equal to someone, everyone else. She spent more time kind of threatening everyone in the chain of command with, like, sexual harassment accusations and just... But the the problem was, a lot of times, Bob, they weren't actually doing anything like, you know, belittling her as a female... They were just simply trying to communicate with her and tell her, like, look, you're just doing this wrong. And she would yell at them. And she'd say, it's because I'm a female. It's because I'm a female. She had this complex. So somehow later in life, that kind of came with me, not as being a female, of course, but trying to be people's equal. And I had this extremely terrible negative self-image about myself. I had no example as fathers. I had four stepfathers as examples, and they ha- they all had extremely different personalities and things. And we moved around so much every three years or whatever, we moved around because we were in the military. So I never had stability. So coming in now, I got married in 1991, and this this was a result of kind of an accidental pregnancy and i just oh. tried to step up and be the man i tried I to man know. up that
2: doesn't work a and, lot
1: and of times. yep yep i i st- i just stood up I, to her parents and everybody i just stood up with my hand over my heart and i said you know what i'm going to take responsibility here you know bob we had no reason we had no business in the world getting married neither right. one of us had relationship skills she also had a terrible self image about herself she was Mm-hmm. Just kind of fragile and easily offended emotionally. so was that, I.
2: That's so familiar because I loathed myself because I with ADHD, I was constantly making stupid mistakes. And people would pick yeah. on me. They'd make me into a clown. And I had no self-esteem. And I met a girl and she had no she had less self-esteem than I did. So she thought I was cool. We went out for a while, and I just, I'm telling you, I just latched onto her. It was like, okay, I got a girl. I'll never get another one. But let's get married. Yeah, I, I, I was like that. I said, uh, how can I get a girl the way I am? And then I finally got one from a friend. We went on a blind date, and I said, hey, you like me? Okay, good. Let's go out. And I never let go. And, you know, of course, I should have let go. I was just thinking about this the other day. I should have let go within three months. I should have said, no, it's not working. But, yeah, yeah. But I was terrified that I would never get another girl and I'd be all by myself the rest of my life.
1: Well, yeah. I didn't realize at the time that early in my life, I was 20, probably 22. And at that time, being in the Army back then, 1987, 1988, 89, 90, 90, In the military where I was, I was not like in a combat unit. We were in a combat ready unit, but I never actually had to see action. But the trouble for me was I was around real soldiering men Mm -hmm. who were self-confident, who were emotionally strong. They weren't, you know, the alpha male with a chip on their shoulder. They were just confident people in their skills. I was wearing a military uniform, but I was trying to just pretty i thought if I just played the part, I would look like a soldier, act like a soldier, be treated like a soldier, but people could see through my stuff, and they knew something was wrong with Wayne mm-hmm. and so anytime anyone approached me, and this is kind of what I'm getting at, anytime someone approached me, pulled me aside, said, "Hey, man, you know I can see that there's something going on here what's what's really going on with you?" I would first react by getting offended <laughs> yes, and that's that's how I saw my mother. i didn't know this at the time, but I was mirror my i didn't have skills of my own I didn't have skills to negotiate someone confronting you saying, "I'm looking you in the eyes and I'm telling you, I see something here, what's going on with you yeah. My defense, since I didn't have a language to explain my feelings and I didn't understand my feelings, was to act offended. Act like I'm going to bring charges on you for accusing me of something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I went into my marriage with that. Yeah. It was a very, it was worse than just having immature skills. This is real deal psychological problems called a disorder. So we were talking the other day about the difference between, you know, some, you know, mental health turns into mental illness over time. And regardless of what our peers think about it, what our children think about it, what our wives think about it, it's something very real. But as yeah. men especially, and women have the same challenge. I'm not just, a, you know, this segregating men and women. Mm-hmm. We're told that we're not supposed to cry. We're not right. supposed to feel like that, quote unquote. Yeah. And I had so many people come to me and say, man, you can't walk around here all tore up about what happened two weeks ago that, you know, you broke up with your girlfriend. So what? And it's like, you don't understand the story, you know, and they didn't want to hear the story. They just wanted to see me act. They wanted to see me act as the alpha male with a military uniform. You know, I didn't have that ability.
2: You have trouble letting go. And that's what I have, I can't let go to something. I mean, I was fired from a job three years ago, and I'm still mad about it.
1: So well, it rattles around in our mind, and yeah, it's, not, it's not you doing it. Yeah, it's not you doing it, it's your mind doing it. It's the filter yeah, yeah. that we process things.
2: It's hard for us to, or at least for me, to forgive. I, I have a hard, hard time in, in forgiving.
1: Yeah, and that's we were touching on that too. And it's like the forgiveness issue to an average person means I'm going to forgive what they did to me back there so that I can move on. So I can quit dwelling on it, but it doesn't mean now I'm going to call them on their birthday. Now I'm going to call them on their mother's day. You know, now I'm going to call them and tell jokes and be happily ever after. That's not what it means in my world. People that have, you know, minor offenses, Bob, is easy to forgive. But somebody that actually complicated my life so much that I lost three decades of my life mm-hmm. in confusion, lost relationships. I've got people that have sworn an oath they'll never talk to me again, and this is 10 years after that, and they're still not talking to me. And, right. you know, even no matter how much I change, no matter how much they see on Facebook or they see me in other public areas where like i'm definitely grown beyond the man i was 10 years ago but Mm -hmm. to them the scars are deep right and so it seems like it's okay for them to hold an offense but it's not okay for me
2: well they do it in just the right way yeah they have a way to do it i'm sorry but it bothers me yeah and so what happened was After your divorce, tell us what happened that led to your eventual homelessness.
1: Well, the marriage lasted like eight years, and it was more like eight years of every six months or every year or so we would try to split up, and then we'd get back together trying to do the right thing. We had two children together. Uh, I've got three children now by two different mothers, and these children are all like 30 years old-ish, and each of them have two babies so or two grandchildren. You know, we got six grandchildren. This is, my family tree has grown. And over the years, I just focused entirely on trying to be the husband, the man, the provider, the partner that I was expected to be and that society says that we must be. And I just didn't have the skills and I couldn't figure that out. And that was my frustration. So by the time we separated in 1998, mind you, I was like 32 years old, 34. I was 34 years old, I think. And I just went on a freelance kind of get away from society, travel trip across America. Honestly, I just like, you know what? I don't have anything holding me down anymore. I'm just going to go visit some lost relatives along the way. I'm going to go to Kentucky. I'm going to go to Indiana. I'm going to go to Portland. So I kind of bounced around with, um, Greyhound buses and, you know, the internet was not anything like it is today, but Mm -hmm. by the year 2000, I was able to pretty much get on the internet and do some basic searches. If I wanted to go to Indiana, Indianapolis, Indiana, I could get on there and search up and just do you know some basic searches and find homeless mission shelters. I could find soup kitchens. I could find labor-ready temp gig jobs that I could do, and I would just go there. Honestly, I didn't know that was homeless. <laughs> mm-hmm. I did that for like two years, though, and people was telling me like, man, when are you going to settle down and be responsible? It's like, be responsible for what? Everything I try to do and try to work and you know try to build up. The woman either leaves me or, you know, something happens at work. I get fired mm. and it's just for nothing. It, I thought society was a kind of a facade. Like it's kind of a fake reality that we just have to go every day, be there at 730, leave at 530, never talk mm. back, never be in a bad mood, never have a bad day. Mm. Not
2: possible. politically correct.
1: Not yeah. yes. Be politically correct. Well. By the time I learned those skills, I was in my 40s, <laughs> not when I left home at 18 years old, for crying out loud. So the first, you know, like I said, the first 20 years at least of my life was I was a loose cannon. I had no skills. I had no awareness. A lot of the superstitions and things that, that my family kind of used to joke about kept me so confused about what really is, what is reality. They sang happy birthday to Jesus, but they also had Christmas snowman and Santa Claus in the same yard. Yeah. You know, they got, a cross, that sense? They got a Santa Claus. Yeah. They got the Easter bunny. They got Jesus on the cross. They got Sabbath. They got, you know, every holiday of the year they were celebrating. So when yeah. it came to religion and spirituality, I had no distinction to no. know, not necessarily what's true or not, but how to actually achieve what we call emotional wellness being centered from your own values, your own core values, none of that was taught to me. I had to learn it along the way. But I ended up homeless in Portland, Oregon, living out in the woods.:
2: Now did you uh, go did you go on a, uh, the street as a homeless person, or you were just in the woods? Yeah, okay. yeah yeah so you were I, got, money. I
1: got so fed up yeah, I got so fed up with I would get a job, lose a job, get a job, lose a job. I felt so victimized. I couldn't do anything right. Instead of everything I touched turned to gold, everything I touched was broken. <laughs> so in Portland, the long story is, especially in the year 2002, 2003, and four, there was like 6,000 homeless people in the metropolitan area. They were everywhere. I homeless culture was just normal there. Mm-hmm. I hadn't really seen that at that scale, that scale. And so I was so fascinated with these homeless people because as society, you know, they're they're so mysterious, Mm. right? It's like, who is that guy? Why is he out there? What's he doing? Why don't he get a job? Same questions everybody has. Mm. I had the same questions. Well, I started actually hanging out with them on the weekends. I was working as a maintenance tech for apartments. And on the weekend, I would just go down there with a backpack on and just hang out. I would go to the missions. I didn't need to be there. I was just hanging out. I'd eat the food and I'd hang out with the homeless people. I was going camping with them on the weekends. You know, there are state parks everywhere in Portland around the city. Go hang out. And then on Monday, I would come back to work and not tell anybody like what I did for the weekend. You know, I just, I was having fun. It was an adventure. So my, my job experience got so terrible. I found out about a fake adoption that happened to me. My mother actually convinced me to go through with an adoption, and she manipulated me and coerced me for about four or five years of my teenage years and tricked me, literally tricked me into believing that my father was basically a sperm donor. Didn't care, didn't want to be a part of my life, but she was telling him because she knew where he was. She was writing him letters. Your son doesn't want to be a part of your life. He, he really loves my husband Larry, you know, which I didn't like. Larry was a dork. <laughs> I didn't like Larry at all, man. Who likes Larry? My, my. F- well, <laughs> he was the kind of person. It was hard to catch him telling the truth oh, about yeah, me. I've seen that. He was such an obsessive lying storyteller. I'm <laughs> not. I knew him for 16 years, and in 16 years' time. I finally pieced together some of the things that he used to tell me as a teenager and some of the things that he's told my friends and his friends. And it's like, Jesus, man, there was nothing this guy, really, the stories he was telling me all through these years were just a load of crap. Yeah. Yeah. And so now I have this obsessive thing, like, I hate liars. I don't like untruth. I'm the same way. I don't like half-truth. I don't like deception. Well, you've been like being lied to your
2: entire life. You're lied to. Oh my God! Yeah, I mean, first there's there's Santa Claus, and then there's Easter Bunny, and then there's God, which we have no proof. And so you were lied to, basically.
1: And well, when I found out about this adoption, it hit me like a brick in the face. My anger from my childhood, I used to blame it on that stepdad that used to whip me a lot, break, you know, punch doors and cuss out loud and couldn't read English. Neil, I used to blame him. And my mother just rode that pony out. She was like, yeah, he really abused us. Well, (laughs) I confronted her one day and said, why did you marry him twice? You got away from him. I said, the reason I resent you now as a mother, you went back to him and remarried that same guy. And Bob. Probably in in five or six years with him, there was six or eight times that she had me and my sister in the car ready to leave. Mm -hmm. We were leaving. She had suitcases. We had food. We were going to her mother's house 200 miles away. She would either turn around and go back, or we would get to grandma's, and within a day or two, he would show up, and we would go back. She had so many chances, and she would keep going back.
2: I was just going to mention, did you, did you ever see a movie called Swing Blade where the woman was codependent towards the guy? That sounds very familiar to what you're talking about. She was abused by this guy, but she couldn't leave. And and that's the syndrome people go through. They get codependent on a person.
1: Yeah, it was similar to that. Yeah. you know. And so by the time I became an adult, my problem was, I was so consumed with anger. Like a rage was in me. Mm. And this was the bipolar anger. And so when I was in Portland trying to keep jobs, it got to a point where I didn't just blow up on everybody. Somebody would come to me like at lunchtime and say, Man, today you seem like you really got a chip on your shoulder. And I would just kind of look at them and say, Okay, well, I know how to take care of it. And I would quietly leave. <laughs> I would just like clock out and leave, not say anything. And never go back, you know. And I just got to the point where I just couldn't talk to people because I just felt like they weren't hearing me. Mm. And when you were talking about like your family, you got two sons and a daughter.
2: Yeah, none of them really have a good relationship. My my oldest one is a uh, a pastor for an evangelist church, and he's probably the best one because he calls me every week. How you doing, Dad? I know you don't believe in what I yeah. believe in, but I'm going to talk to you anyway. And then my middle son yeah. is a Republican Trumper. And we go back and forth, and, and it, it really gets too ugly. I don't do it anymore. And my daughter, we had some incidents. Like, I showed up late to her wedding because I was deathly sick. I had a, I came from the hospital, and I traveled on Uber all the way down to the wedding. And she blamed me for that. And then there was a couple other incidents. And then that final incident where I yelled, on a text message, and she hasn't talked to me in months. Yeah, it just destroyed our relationship.
1: Well, when you told your children over the years, you've been trying to communicate to them in particular that you know what your problem is, and they don't and believe you it. You and I agree that doesn't mean it excuses our behavior.
2: They don't. They don't believe it. And it's not uncommon. I talked to so many ADHD people in a group and every single one of them says the same thing people don't believe it's real they don't believe cuz they don't they it's, they they don't have it they
1: believe it's an excuse well you're just using that as an excuse you got ADHD okay whatever so why are you so mean to me yes exactly well i get the same thing with this bipolar it's a trigger bipolar is a trigger and the more i've learned about it it is so complex just like your ADHD mm-hmm. even though we might take meds or whatever we do, it doesn't change how the brain functions. The, my Mine is called a bipolar brain. It's not like Wayne has bipolar depression. No, Wayne has a bipolar brain. So my brain functions from the bipolar wiring, and I'm the one inside of my body, noticing my reactions. And I'm the one that has to take control of my own reactions, which is usually too late after I say things. (laughs) Right, You you blurt things out. I
2: do that all the time.
1: Didn't you say that one of your, your son, your son told you, you said, you know what, I have really serious ADHD. And he said, well, that's a convenient... Convenient excuse for being such an asshole.
2: Exactly, and he said that I have narcissistic personality disorder. That's what he calls it. Yeah, and they are close. Yeah, but there's a yeah, they're very, difference. very related. They don't want to take. They don't want to own it. They don't want to own it. They they'd yeah. rather ignore it. It doesn't exist. I'm going to ignore dad because he drives me crazy. That's it. Let me live my little poly world and. That's it. I mean, they don't want me in their lives because I'm negative and I'm this and I blurt things out and I'm rude and I interrupt people. Everything is my fault because I have a different type of brain than they have. And and this is an oppressed, yes. we're an oppressed minority. That's what I call it. Because there are a lot of people out there in my audience that have ADHD I've reached out a couple of times and said, what are you guys suffering from? Zero response. Because I believe that they just don't want to admit it. They don't want to admit it to the public, let's say. And I, I get no responses, but I know these people are watching and listening to the show. So it's it's, it's a hard thing to admit that you have a problem And that problem is causing relationship problems. And they say people with ADHD commit suicide more than most other groups and their families. Their families commit suicide because they can't adapt. So it's a super big problem and nobody's doing anything about it. I'm trying to, but, you know, how much can I do with it, with a podcast? Only so much
1: right when i was when i was sorry when i was when i was just hanging around in portland hanging out with the homeless people i was so attracted to them now i'm not talking about the guy that's standing on the corner and he's wearing shredded clothes and he looks disgusting i'm not talking about them guys i'm talking about ordinary people that are experiencing homelessness And a lot of times, it is not just because they can't find a job. It's because they can't function with everyone else. They can't. I can't. Well, I've learned skills now. But back then, I couldn't walk into a lunchroom at work with 15 or 20 other people and just sit down and have small talk conversations. Talk about fishing. Talk about motorcycles. Talk about horses. Talk about birds. Yeah, because... I didn't have anything really to talk about. I was so used to people pointing out my faults that I really didn't want to engage with people. Well, then that made them suspicious because I was the guy sitting in the corner by myself. And then they would come approach me later on and say, man, how come you just don't hang out with us? And it's like, because as soon as you get to know me, you're just going to start, you know, badgering me and, you know.
2: Yeah. And, and, And abusing you. Do you know how much abuse I took? At work, uh, I had several jobs where they basically, like I went on vacation one time and they ransacked my whole office. They they taped my phone to the thing and everything. And I, I went to my manager and said, they have to stop doing this. And they came to me after that and they were ready to kill me. They were ready to kill me, literally. So I couldn't take it anymore.
1: Unfortunately, one of the traits of bipolar, and I think it's one of the traits of ADHD as well, is when someone offends you deliberately. Like, we get offended easily, but not. It's usually people don't mean to offend us. They're just interacting. We take offense to it. But when someone deliberately offended me back then, I would go home and I would work on it and work on it. I became the really... I perfected narcissism as a retaliation because of my emotional wounding. Like if somebody deliberately hurt my feelings and walked away laughing about it, it hurt me so deeply that I would like plan my move. And then the next time I saw them, I would have something like so profound I would say to them, they they kind of wouldn't realize how offending it was until they had time to think about it. Well, then they would be standing out in the parking lot like, come on over here, come over here come over here. It's like, man, why do you want to fight? Like, you're the one that started it. You said something to me, you know. But what I was getting at about the homeless, you know, I'm sort of an advocate now. I'm trying to work on like building a website and doing podcasting, but it's a very slow process. Bob, I've realized that a lot of homeless people, minus COVID, I mean, COVID is a different problem, but there's something like like 250,000 National, like nationwide, the population prior to COVID was 250,000 homeless people in America. And it's not just economic related. It's because as a society, we have sort of a template of how people should be. We have an mm-hmm. expectation how people should exactly. be, quote unquote. And so then our children expect us to just
2: kind of cater to their feelings. We're a shoot, Dad. My my daughter would be upset I wasn't wearing a suit, and you know it's like I didn't have to, so I didn't. But she she wanted to ward cleaver father, I guess, and I didn't know what to tell her. Um, I'm not ward cleaver. I'm I'm a, a weird guy with hangs out with weird people because the society doesn't accept us. ADHDers are not accepted. They won't even admit that it's a problem. And I bet you if you went and tested the homeless, 50% of them are ADHD or dyslexia.
1: More than likely. Yep. I would say it's a. Well, well, you and I were talking the other day and I heard this keyword that kept coming up. We were on the phone for a good 40 minutes. You said the word anxiety probably 15 times and it caught my attention and stood out. And I don't think people realize how real of a problem anxiety is by itself. If you isolate anxiety and Mm -hmm. turn it into a disorder and then complicate that with ADHD or bipolar, what you have is the anxiety interferes with the skills that we actually
2: do Mm -hmm. have.
1: Anxiety causes us to amplify our worry about how people are going to interpret or receive us. I'll give you an example. Like, you know, holidays, right now it's Thanksgiving weekend almost. Christmas is coming. Oh, great. <laughs> my anxiety gets so peaked up because I know, I know. that, like,
2: I I'm, can't make it through Christmas.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I'm supposed to interact with my children, I'm supposed to send cards, I'm supposed to get on the phone and talk to the grandchildren. And it's like, they don't really want me to. My kids, that are adults they don't want me to get on the phone and be a grandpa to their children and that's fine that's okay but the problem is society makes us feel sort of self-condemned when we don't or when we
2: cannot and that's the anxiety it's it's not it's not okay Uh, I, i challenge that it's not okay they have to be able to go into the real world and realize that some people have problems. They don't mean to hurt your feelings. They don't mean to yell. Right. But they're they're your family. Yeah. Families have to stick together. You know, I always wanted a perfect family, and my wife just took the rug and took it out under me and moved them down to Charleston. But I was born and raised in New Jersey, and it's very uncomfortable down here for me. Um, I, I don't go to church. Uh, it's very hard for me to meet people. I mean, they're very nice down here, but it's really hard to get close to a Southerner. I, that's what i found. I'll probably cut that out. But <laughs> I just, I, I don't know what to do anymore. They don't want me here. So, you know what? I'm going back to Jersey. Well, we're
1: we're dealing with social stigmas. I guess it's called society stigmas. There's a stigma which most people in society don't realize they're doing it. They judge us, right? They judge us based on who they are. Like most people in society think they know what normal is. So if you're not normal or if you're not what they think is normal, you're the oddball. And if you're the oddball,
2: it's Facebook
1: normal. Yes. Yes. Facebook normal. So then they analyze you trying to figure out like what your problem is. But then, When you get to know them, they don't even realize how much anxiety and ADHD and bipolar and depression that they're dealing with because they have the social persona that they don't have any problems. They don't have any disorders. They don't have a problem like dealing with their emotions, but most people do. I wanted to take your attention to one of your episodes really, really touched me deeply. Uh, it's called Don't Give Up. Mm-hmm. It was your episode, Don't Give Up. Um, the lady's name was Amy. Uh, she couldn't oh, afford to get help. Lived... Uh,
2: Amy's was, oh, uh, it? you don't cut too deep. If the cut's not too deep, what's the name
1: yes. of Yes. Yeah. She lives in England,
2: right? You know, she couldn't folk.
1: afford to get help.
2: Right.
1: She couldn't afford to get help. And that's a part of the challenge for most of us. We don't. Not only do we not know where to go, who to talk to to get help, but we can't afford to just walk in and start getting help. The government is she supposed started, to
2: help her, but they let her down.
1: And it, <laughs> she she started cutting herself. Yeah, and I remember you saying you particularly you didn't judge her for that. You didn't you didn't find judgment for her like everybody else did.
2: I lost people on on uh, on my uh, Twitter. Because of that.
1: Yeah. Well, you saw it as, like, you said it was an act of desperation. She was cutting herself as an and act of desperation. And you saw right into that. You saw that. And most people can't see beyond their own interpretation. That's what I meant. By I went from because. Xanax to
2: Xanax to get through it. And and it, guess what? The yeah. alternative is what? Drink? Drug? I mean, cutting is bad, oh, but it's not yeah. drinking and drugging. Uh, I mean,
1: I did pot for thirty years. Thirty years well, now of my life, it's like, legal. Uh, almost <laughs> on a daily basis. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, I was smoking pot because I literally could not cope or function. I'll just put it like uh, this: I, I it. think you said when what Xanax helps you to keep
2: from from killing myself from. Ki- to- when I had the attack, I, I I took a Xanax every time I got a chance because I couldn't live. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't move. And my wife was sitting there going, come on, snap out of it. You're okay. What's wrong with you? What's the matter?
1: Yeah, yeah. snap out of it. Man up. Well, that's kind of what pot did for me. Pot kept me from really exploring my feelings. And it had me... it. it to be honest with you, it helped me have an attitude that I just don't care what people well, say. Lucky me, because I internalized things back then. I internalized things so deeply that a minor offense or even a minor joking, you know how some yeah, people are yeah. joking. Like, man, you look like you got two left feet. I would dwell on that for three or four days and be like, why in the world did he say that? And pot helped me to just not care. And it helped me just block out things. But what I've realized later on was I actually wanted to get – I'll shift gears here. I got to a point when I was homeless in Portland, living in a tent out in the woods, I realized, okay, I've gone too far. I've gone too far with letting society have this effect on me. I've gone too far with letting society convince me how broken I am, how useless I am. I've gone too far with how my children have convinced me I'll never be their dad. I'll never be their, their children's grandpa. How awful. And is it's that, fine uh, to a certain level, but.
2: it's awful. Personally,
1: it, it still it hurts. Would you know, hurt
2: anyone. Personally,
1: it still hurts. I mean,
2: it's not fair. And
1: so I got to the point where I literally had a rope. I had a rope up mm-hmm. in a tree and I was going to do it. And I finally realized this is what I realized. Society drove me to that mm-hmm. edge because I couldn't cope with what society thought of me as a person
2: or what they wanted you to do.
1: I had to find self-worth for myself that had nothing to do with anyone except exactly. Me. And that was my turnaround. Mm-hmm. Now that's that we say that all the time. There's 10,000 YouTube videos. How to be happy today. Six steps to emotional well being. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? there isn't six steps to It's it's, it's kind of like do these six things and you will be a millionaire. You know, not everyone can do that. Not everyone can be a millionaire. Well, not everyone can achieve mental wellness and emotional wellness just by following someone's program. That's what stranded me so bad. Everything I tried, Bob didn't work because I was trying something that worked for (sighs) them or something they thought should work for me. And since it didn't, I was broken see, and so I got to the point where regardless of my mental status, my emotional status, I realized I had to be able to accept what was happening to me as if it was real. Even though my children didn't want to hear it, nobody wanted to hear it. So I turned it around. I made up my mind. What I'm going to do is stop all contact with my children with my mother because here's the thing you probably would agree with this i haven't heard you say it the more that you try and get a response from them and they reject the more you wound yourself well not
2: only that the the more that they will reject you because you're hanging on to them they don't want to be hung on to yeah you're so clingy you're so clingy. and and
1: and then the ghosting like man the ghosting was not uh, anything
2: my kids one day just blocked me completely and they said we're yeah. not going to unblock you and and I was like so taken back by that even today I'm taken back by it and that's when I changed I said oh shit you know I'm going to lose my kids yeah. and that's the yeah. way it is maybe they'll come back to me one day yeah. but it changed that's me. what I had to do because
1: my I realized that the 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 core, the core. I'm trying to figure out how to say this because we're running out of time. Yeah, the core um, amount of it's people. It's called orders. codependent. Yeah. Well, it's called codependent. But for me, being bipolar and having like nine out of ten in the in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM five. If you read about borderline personality disorder, it's a disorder. The core. Problem with someone that has these emotional problems is being codependent, yes. but in an extreme way. Yes. It's not like I I want them to respond to me. You know, Christmas is coming. I want a Christmas card. No, it's kind of like you're suffocating me if I don't get exactly. one. If I send a text message and a few hours go by, I would start obsessing about yeah. it. Like, yeah. oh my god, oh my god, why aren't they calling me back? Well, maybe they're I is you. dead. I'll try Facebook. I I'll try I'll try I'll try Twitter, you know. So I would send like five messages with five and, different and they ways. Hated that. Well that's what yeah. caused them to block course, me. Yeah. yeah. They were like, You are so obsessive and it's like, no, I'm just so determined to get a response from you and it's
2: the, but the more you did that, the further you're driving them away. I I stopped contact with them and I'm gonna let them come back to me now. And I, I kinda made up with my son, but my daughter is out. She's a mile away, but 100,000 miles away. That's the way I look at it.
1: We could be in the same room, and there's, like, no body temperature between us.
2: It's just cold. (laughs) Yeah, it's just terrible, and it shouldn't happen, but it does. And I think um, there's nothing you can do but hang out with the people that accept you. Yes, hang out with the people that accept you. I think that's an important thing. You don't want to stay friends with people that make fun of you and always put you down, because that's no help. To try to find people that won't do that, and it would help you a lot, I think. Okay, that's the end of part one. Uh, We have a part two. Uh, We didn't mean to go over so long, but we did. And I think part two will be just as entertaining as part one was. All right. So I'll give you all my um, links in the description so I don't bore you with them. And so have a great holiday, and I'll see you next year.